Happy October, my friends, my dear, close, personal friends. Welcome to the October edition of Talking Tunes with Turnip. I am Turnip, and it is October. Ooh, the most frightening month of all the 12. We are going to talk about frightening songs that I've spent a frightening amount of time listening to. We're going to get into that soon. But first, we're going we're, we're gonna to have a moment of peace. Ooh, isn't that special? How, how, how peaceful is this? This is Black Drifts by Alabaster Plume, and it hijacked uh, what was otherwise going to be an incredibly spooky episode of this podcast. Alabaster Plume, uh, he hijacked my evening recently. I was driving back home from work and uh, listening to the radio as one as one does, when I was suddenly disrupted by the siren call of Alabaster de Plume's tenor saxophone. All of a sudden, I was, I was having a peaceful moment. I hadn't been feeling peaceful. I'd been feeling frightening. I was driving home from work. But I, I, I heard two songs by Alabaster de Plume play back-to-back on the radio, and I was seduced by a moment of peace. Then the DJ came on and announced that Alabaster de Plume was in New Orleans, the city where I, I personally live. And he was playing that evening at the Music Box Village. I said, challenge accepted. I'll see any show at the Music Box Village. Music Box Village is a very well-named musical venue. It's a little village that a bunch of hippies built to look like the inside of a music box. I, I, I saw the best show that I've ever seen in my entire life there. Sun Ra and his orchestra. Orchestra? Sun Ra and his orchestra played there. His whole band was scattered all around. They were playing in trees and shit like magical hobbits. Elderly African-American hobbits. Elderly African-American hobbits. That That should have been a... That should have been one of the extended books of The Lord of the Rings, you know. Do, it, do the first three the same way, but then after, you know, Return of the King, everyone's African-American hobbits. Sunra's alto sax player, Marshall Allen, got into the crowd, and he was playing straight into people's faces. He played straight into my face. And Marshall Allen is a 99-year-old man. If you Google Marshall Allen right now, the first thing that will come up is an article that says Marshall Allen is still playing music at 99 years old. When that man plays the alto sax in your face, it becomes quite clear that he can see your soul. I love Music Box Village, but I just I, I, I just haven't been back there since because it's run by a bunch of hippies. Now, I know what you're thinking. I don't have a problem with hippies. Marshall Allen is a hippie. He, he, he's almost certainly the first or second one, and he's the only black hobbit but whenever i'm around hippies i feel as though they can see all the problems with me they can see my soul new orleans is not a hippie heavy town i think that's actually rare for a major city in a lot of major cities you see a lot of white children whose parents pay their rent so they can smoke weed with white children and make art where they where they vomit on canvases while thinking about how their parents pay their rent But parents don't send their white children to New Orleans on account of how easy it is for other people to murder them. It's a major city for murder. Very, very guttural, dangerous city. Honestly, it's it's very aligned with my own personal energy. Whenever I see a hippie, 
I feel like they can see my personal energy, my dangerous, frightening energy crusted around the outermost fringes of my eyes, you know. But that's probably in my head. I was very in my head when I entered the Music Box Village. I was feeling a little boxed in. Music Box Village is literally a box. It's a box. It's a box that they made out of a, a bunch of roof siding that was probably repurposed from Katrina. I don't know. Um, that seems like the way hippies would do it. They filled it with all these remarkable musical sculptures that look like Fabergé eggs, but inside there will be like, you know, a landline telephone, and you can sing into it and make like a garage band loop, and it's incredible. It, it's just incredible. The whole time I was there, I was thinking how incredible it would be to live there, what I would do if I lived there. I'd, re I'd reinforce the walls with steel, add some barbed wire, spikes, covered in feces like the Vietnamese used so that anyone who tries to break in would get sepsis. I would protect the hippies with sepsis. But as I was having these thoughts, Alabaster de Plume took the stage and it became quite clear that he was a warlock. He was wearing fingerless gloves that were yellow with black stripes. He was wearing a, a pair of shoes that my fiance owns which were yellow with black stripes, and a pure red shirt with like a, a black mesh penny over it. And I, I thought that was amazing. Just the outfit. I thought he, he looked like Charlie Brown and Linus at the same time with like a little Ian Anderson mixed in. If you asked me as a child what I wanted to look like as an adult, I would without a doubt answer Charlinus with a little Ian Anderson mixed in. Then he started playing his tenor sax, and it, it sounded incredible. But in the middle of his song, he, he stopped. He stopped very abruptly, and he said, I'm trying to solve a problem. That's how he sounded. Very British like this and very slow. Of how to be myself while also being in front of you. And he is a British man, and he talks like this and quite slowly. And I thought that was very remarkable indeed that he led us into his process like that. I thought that was remarkable. He showed us how the sausage was made a little bit. He really cut through the artifice of the performance and led us into what he was feeling, and there was no irony or sarcasm. He was, he, he was vulnerable, which to me is frightening. That's why we're including it uh, in this Halloween episode, because it happened recently, and it was frightening to see vulnerability. That's why we have that expression about sausage. It's frightening to see how they make sausage. You don't want to see it. But I say, I say all this to say that it was an incredible experience, and I felt incredibly in the moment there. The wind swirled all around him. It's October now. This was the first evening in five months that New Orleans was not the same temperature as hell. A couple of weeks ago, the water over the Mississippi River was 110 degrees. That's as hot as it's been in recorded history. That's the Crescent City, baby. We're still breaking records every day. The river hasn't been that hot since dinosaurs was taking little sips out of it. Let's go. But the other night, everything was very cool. It was just a very cool night in the city. After Alabaster finished playing that song, he said, I love you. I see the love you have for one another. And I have no idea how you made me feel so welcome in your city, but this moment is only possible here, and you are leading the world. And that got a fucking standing O. Because New Orleans is a city in America, and when a British person tells an American that they're leading the world, 
It fucking hits like nothing else in the world, mate. It hits you right in that fucking Washington DNA you don't even know you have. The English were our first enemies, and you know what? We all know deep down we're going to have to fight them again before it's over. We're going to have to face those crumpet-loving sons of bitches. But I want to put it out there that when we do, and I've won the battle of Music Box Village, I'm going to let Alabaster to Plume behind our steel walls. I don't want him getting sepsis. We're going to need him to help us lead the world. Okay, next up. On the subject of hippies and quaint imaginary villages, we have Teddy Bear Picnic, courtesy of Jerry Garcia. I love Jerry Garcia. Did you ever hear what Jerry Garcia said when he started back playing with the Grateful Dead after he got out of rehab for the first time? He said, this band sucks. I love Jerry Garcia. I think he's as good as it gets. His career, I think, is really as good as it gets because you can listen to Jerry Garcia your whole life and still be surprised to walk into a Goodwill and discover that he released a CD in 1993 titled Not For Kids Only. This is a record from a bygone era of children's entertainment where for some reason there, there was a consensus that everything made for children should be half frightening. Where Do you remember that? The, the, the era where it's there's got to be one part of Toy Story where Woody, the beloved cowboy, has his head turn all the way around in its socket. And he whispers threats of incredible vengeance to a boy as, as the kid's disfigured toys that are quite separate from the plot descend upon him like the movie Freak, the little freaks from the movie Freaks. You got that scene, and then right after that scene, we'll have... Randy Newman wrap it up with a song about friendship. In Teddy Bear Picnic, things are going fucking fantastic for the teddy bears. Jerry Garcia is singing about friendship. Here are, here are a couple scenes he describes from the Teddy Bear Picnic. One, picnic time for teddy bears. The little teddy bears are having a lovely time today. Little redundant, but he's illuminating how they feel about the picnic. The bears were not there by coercion. See, see them gaily gad about. They love to play and shout. They never have any cares. At six o'clock, their mummies and daddies will take them back to bed because they're tired little teddy bears. This is all very good and positive stuff, right? I'm sure it will stay that way for the remainder of the song, right? Well, here's the final verse. If you go down in the woods today, you had better not go alone. It's lovely down in the woods today, but safer to stay at home. For every bear that ever was will gather there for certain because today's the day the teddy bears have their picnic. Now, are we under threat of violence from these teddy bears? We broke bread with them. We've enjoyed them for the duration of a picnic. And if you're wondering whether Jerry switches quite suddenly into minor chords, of course he does. I wonder whether you could still do that. I wonder if children's entertainment can still have like 10 minutes of just body horror. I doubt it. Kids got different. I was showing the film Aladdin to my boss's kids once. He asked me to, he asked me to. I did not coerce them. Uh, this was not a teddy bear picnic situation. But I went in with my eyes open. I, I was ex expecting to have issues with Aladdin on account of the scary red genie and how my boss's kids are such cowards. But we didn't even get that far. We, we never got very far into movies. 
uh, because my boss's kids were cowards. Every every movie they watch, they say, this is scary, turn it off. We got to the point in Aladdin where Aladdin steals the bread, and they said to me, how is Aladdin the good guy if he steals bread? I said, keep watching. So they keep watching. Now, at the end of the scene, Aladdin has to give the bread to two orphan children. They said, why does he have to give his bread to them? And I said, well, they're orphans. They have nothing. If Aladdin hadn't come along, they were maybe 10, 12 minutes away from eating each other. I didn't say that. I said their mommies and daddies aren't around to give them food. They said, that's scary. Turn it off. That's, that's how they tell me to do things. I think that's scary. But those are rich kids. You know, they're my boss's kids. That's their lot in life. One day, they'll be your kids' bosses. But I like to think that normal people still think it's normal to frighten their kids. I I was talking to my friend Will at work last Halloween. I said, hey, Will, you got any plans for Halloween? He said, I'm spending it with my kids. If you have kids, that's all you ever say. If your friends have kids, you got to master the art of the follow-up question or else you're not going to have friends who have kids. So I ask a follow-up question. I say, hey, Will, are your kids old enough to watch a scary movie with Dad? He said something interesting. He said, I thought my oldest one was. I watched that new Halloween movie with him because the new Halloween movie had just come out. And um, Will said, he said, my son was good right up until the very end. Then my wife came over, told me to feed the dog. So Will said to his son, Junior, get out there and feed the dog. His son said, I don't want to go out there. Will said, why? His son said, Michael could be out there. Now I'm talking to my friend Will. He's got a child, so I got to give him a follow-up question. I said, oh, poor fella. What'd you tell him? Then Will said, I told him, get your ass out there and feed that dog. He was real pissed about it. And he he was real pissed for the rest of the the shift. But he went on. He was like, I'd understand if it was nighttime. But this was daytime. This is New Orleans. There's worse shit to be scared of than Michael Myers. I even paused the movie and made him finish that shit when he got back inside. And that was kind of all he said to me for the rest of the day. He just was flipping burgers fucking real hard on the grill. It was kind of sad, but that's normal. It's, I think it's kind of happy that normal people are still kind of sad. Very scared. How about Halloween, though? Oh, those movies are great. And John Carpenter did all that great music for them. The, the, the music is sort of equally great. It, it's, it's at least equally iconic. Because the movie is for adults, but children know the music. The music finds them out in the world somewhere. It comes on at like a Halloween party between Thriller and the Monster Mash. They're bobbing for apples and making wholesome memories. Then they experience the movie for the first time as an adult, or at least as a slightly a teenager, slightly older child. And that music comes in and you get goosebumps. It's like, oh, this is what that song always meant. When I hear the Halloween music, the, the, the movie is not even the first thing I think of. I think of my daddy. My family was a Halloween family. My dad was a Halloween dad. Halloween for us was a, an event of incredible tradition and ritual. My dad always wore the same mask. Oscar Wilde says, give a man a mask, he'll tell you the truth. I don't know if that even applies to this situation, but my dad wore the same mask every year at Halloween. That's the truth. My mom would switch it up alternate i should say she would either be cleopatra or she'd be a hershey kiss my dad didn't switch anything up he wore the same mask every year he had this mask that he got at kmart it was an off-brand 
Crypt Keeper mask, but he got it at Kmart, so it looked kind of like the Crypt Keeper. Really, it looked like the face of a regular man who looked kind of like the Crypt Keeper, which is much scarier than looking at the Crypt Keeper. You see a guy in a really good Crypt Keeper mask, you're like, wow, that's a really good Crypt Keeper mask. You see a guy in a bad Crypt Keeper mask, you're like, that's a guy. Now that's scary. And when my dad put on his Crypt Keeper mask, he wouldn't tell you anything. He'd just, he'd stare at you. Which the Crypt Keeper never did on that program. It's a 30 minute show. But he'd stare at you for 30 minutes straight if you let him. Which again is scarier than anything the Crypt Keeper ever did. I had a buddy named Rudy growing up. I'm gonna tell you three things about Rudy. One, he became a professional boxer. Two, he's about six foot two. And three, at 12 years old, he was about six foot two. My dad scared the shit out of Rudy. I remember at 12 years old, me and Rudy were like eating pizza on Halloween. My dad stood in the doorway and watched us eat pizza for 30 minutes straight, not saying a goddamn word. And it's Halloween. The doorbell is ringing. You know, there's children waiting for treats, you know, and he just stood there watching us while Rudy said things like, okay, I get it. Very funny. You've made your point now. But my dad never said anything, and that was the point. I don't know what that tells you about my dad. I guess he's a guy who loves Halloween. There's some truth in that. Every year he wears that same mask, he puts out that, the, the same decorations, and he plays that same song from Halloween. And he's a musician, my dad, so he has, he, he has studio speakers that you can hear all the way down the block. He's given multiple generations the goosebumps of the Halloween soundtrack. And kids really came from all around the town because it was this big kind of production. Uh, you know, little kids, they would hear it from down the block and little kids would come up to our door and they're trembling because they hear the music from Halloween. And then uh, my, my brother would usually like jump out from behind a bush. We all had our little parts to play. That was a, you know, like my brother would jump out from behind a bush, bam, that scare one. Kids shitting their pants. My mother opens the door. She's dressed as a Hershey Kiss. Not so scary. The kids are starting to calm down. All of a sudden, my dad is standing behind her in a mask that looks like if someone had a face that looked like the Crypt Keeper's face. And what's this? He's holding a real axe. Because my dad would be holding a real axe that's rusty. Because it's real. And it was in our backyard. We live in New Jersey. We don't use axes. Except for once a year on Halloween. So then they stop shitting in their pants and start shitting in their parents' arms because they need to be physically carried away. Then the parents say something like, It's okay. It's only a mask. He's just a man under there, right? And they say, right? Because then they expect my dad to say, right? And take off his mask. But my dad doesn't say anything when he wears the mask. That's part of it. And that's when I finally play my part and hand them a Reese's peanut butter cup. The big regular size Reese's. We didn't fuck around. And that's pretty much how it went. At least that's, that, that's how it was supposed to go. The thing about where we lived in New Jersey is that it was right on the edge of Newark. So kids would come in from Newark, New Jersey. I don't know if you know anything about Newark, New Jersey. It's famous for its airport and crime. So when people are trick-or-treating with their kids, sometimes they leave Newark. Sometimes they come to our house. And the kids who would come to our house, sometimes they come back every year. And if they come back every year, they come back bigger, stronger.
stronger, wiser. And like I said, it's a working class neighborhood, so a lot of these kids look like they're coming to trick or treat on their way home from like from work. It's like, oh, what are you supposed to be, little boy? Oh, I'm a painter. And then the kid will have his own kid, and it'll be like, you know, this is a painter's son. One time my mom was giving candy to a little boy who wasn't wearing a costume. She said, what are you supposed to be, little boy? He said, fuck you. <laughs> Suffice to say, every year, kids get older. That's true everywhere, but in Newark, kids get tough. And the thing about people who are tough, they don't like it if you made them shit yourself. And when they were children, my dad made them all shit themselves. So they come back to my dad every year. One year we get this kid, and he'd literally seen it all. He came up to the door, he knew the whole score. He said, there's a boy behind that bush, and he, you know, bam. No one's scared of my brother. Scare one, ruined. He says, when the Hershey Kiss woman comes to open the door, there's a guy behind her who looks like white Michael Jackson. Bam! People start laughing at my dad when they see him, like they would laugh at white Michael Jackson. He doesn't say anything. The kid calls it out. Just get your candy. He's not going to say nothing. He does the same thing every Halloween. Bam. Hurt my dad. Because for reasons both mysterious and profound, my dad does do the same thing every Halloween. It brings him great joy to frighten the local children. And here, a local child had gotten the best of him. He turned away, shamefaced. It was hard to watch. I thought he was finally going to take off that mask and give up. What he did instead was dip into his work closet for a second, uh, which was right next to the door, and spin back around, wielding a functional chainsaw. <laughs> now, he claims that the chain had been taken off of the chainsaw, but he came back pretty quick. He came back pretty quick. He showed that little boy. That little boy fucking shit his pants, shit in his parents' arms. His parents probably shit their pants. They thought their son was about to die at the hands of white Michael Jackson. And that's what Halloween is all about to me, Charlie Brown. Next up is Thriller. If it's Halloween, you know I'm listening to Thriller on repeat. I wonder why. Thriller is the number one selling album of all time. I wonder why. Don't get me wrong. I love Thriller. If it's Halloween, I'm listening to Thriller on repeat. But it's not the best Michael Jackson song, and it's not even my favorite Michael Jackson album, not by a long shot. The title track is essentially the monster mask with disco production, and yet the entire world listens to the entire six-minute song every Halloween, every year since it came out. And for more than one of those years, the songwriter was enthralled in a sexual misconduct case in which his accusers had only recently, I assume, become aware of the monster mash. But still, we listen. We listened when he dangled his son out of a window. We listened when he died and all of his sins were forgiven. We listened to it when that documentary came out, reminding us of everything he did and how we shouldn't be listening to it. We all pretended like we weren't going to listen to it, but we listened to it then because we love to hear Vincent Price rapping. I wonder what we would put up with from the guy who made the monster mash. Would we still separate the monster from the mash? I don't know. Next. We started off talking about New Orleans. I think we ought to end this talking about New Orleans because New Orleans is spooky and it's Halloween. Here is Marie Laveau from New Orleans' own Dr. John, Macremanac. Dr. John is the heart and soul of New Orleans. He's got an incredible voice. I saw him as a guest judge once at a cooking show. He showed up late, high as a witch's titty, had absolutely nothing to say about any of the dishes he ate. 
after he, any time they would like cut to him after he ate a dish, he'd be like, "Ebony, Ebony, oh man, I love eating, I love acid. I just took five tabs of acid, and you're listening to WWOZ. New Orleans is leading the world." In this song, Dr. John tells you the story of Marie Laveau, uh, New Orleans voodoo queen, a classic spooky New Orleans story, one of the many. There's so many great spooky New Orleans stories. If you visit, you'll probably have one of your very own. (laughs) New Orleans is a great city. There's a great Tennessee Williams quote where he says, America has only three cities, New York, San Francisco, and New Orleans. Everywhere else is Cleveland. I'll add to that that New Orleans is the only one of those cities where you can look behind you at any time and find that you're being chased by a one-legged dog. Great for that. We're leading the world in one-legged dogs. Marie Laveau is one of the classic New Orleans legends. She was a soothsayer. She actually started as a a hairdresser for wealthy families in New Orleans and just cutting their hair. She heard all these different secrets, you know, all this sort of uh, barbershop talk, gossip about the different rich ladies and she would, and she'd hear like, oh, Jacques is having an affair with Miss Marie. And then she'd go over to Miss Marie and be like, oh, you are having an affair with Jacques. And Miss Marie would be like, wow, you must be a, a voodoo queen. And because she was a uh, hairdresser, she had a really iconic haircut. She had like this huge updo. And as she got older, she gave all of her daughters the huge updo and they looked very much like her. So people, you know, they thought that they were her. And she had this reputation as, you know, living for like a hundred years. Really, she was just passing on a killer look. But that's one of the nice New Orleans horror stories. There's, uh, there was the jazz man, the serial killer who only spared people who played jazz music or were going out to see it. There's Madame LaLaurie. There's the guy who sleeps on my air conditioning unit outside my bedroom window. Madame LaLaurie, I think, is a... Or LaLaurie. LaLaurie. Madame LaLaurie, I think, is a very scary story. The story goes that Madame LaLaurie was an exotic beauty in her youth in New Orleans, and she tried to maintain her youth into her old age by using the blood of her slaves. And I'm going to go on record as saying that sucks don't do that straight up but she did that and people knew about it and even the other slave owners were like oh man that madame lalaurie she's a bad slave owner and when she died they collected her body from her enormous mansion and to the, which by the way is still the biggest house in all of the french quarter and when they went into it they found all manner of fingers and bones stuffed in the walls which sucks As you can imagine, the house is mightily haunted, but the house is also the biggest house in the French Quarter to this day. So it has had many owners since then who thought they weren't going to let a good ghost story ruin a, a good piece of real estate. But here's the thing. Here's another quote hailing from the city of New Orleans. Fuck around and find out. Everyone who fucked around and bought that house found out that it was so haunted by children, black children, screaming all into the hours of the night. And that's no good. I don't care what your politics are. You don't, want, you don't want to hear the ghosts of black children screaming in the middle of the night. It sucks. But guess what? Here's the part where you find out that you know someone who owned the Lollery Mansion. 
everyone, in fact, knows someone who owned the Lollery Mansion because in 2006, it was bought by Nicholas Kim Coppola, a.k.a. the one, the only Nick Cage. Nick Cage loves ghost stories. He buys dinosaur bones. He buys a cursed occult texts removed from Pompeii and shit like that. Relics from lost civilizations that are the, the reason that the civilizations were lost. He loves a ghost story. And he loved the story of Madame LaLaurie until 2006 when he started his own chapter in it. He bought that house while he was filming a, a, a movie in the city. Shortly thereafter, people say they saw him wandering the French Quarter screaming about the horrors he saw in that house, the voices he heard. And here's the thing. They tormented him well into the night, but you know what? Everyone in the French Quarter is tormented well into the night, and no one is going to feel bad for you about it if you're doing crazy stuff like buying cursed houses that are righteously cursed. Slave cursed. You fucked up. I'll say it. I'll go on record. Nicholas Cage, you fucked up. It's one thing to buy a haunted house. It is another thing to buy Hitler's house. <laughs> If you're going to get a ghost, get a Patrick Swayze ghost situation, you know, where something bad happened to someone good. Don't go top shelf haunted. No one's going to feel bad for you when you tell them you had a, a, a nightmare in Hitler's bed. Oh, where were you? Oh, Hitler's bed. And what's really funny, if you're familiar with the work of Nicolas Cage, as I'm sure you are, check out what happens to his IMDb page around 2006. He was doing face-off bringing out the dead Martin Scorsese matchstick men national treasure he buys the Lollary Mansion bam he's doing the Wicker Man Ghost Rider World Trade Center Ant Bully remember that period of time where people were joking about whether or not Nicolas Cage was a bad actor or not he was in a bad house in the French Quarter that's that New Orleans effect we lead the world and our our, our ghosts lead the, the box office fuck around and find out oh that's our show that is our show for this week it's gonna be a big month for turnip i've got a lot of content coming your way every week for the month of october i'm gonna be releasing a new vision of hell that's what we're doing for october a new vision of hell every week on this channel um just a little meditation on hell every week until the end of the month where I give you a big old Halloween special. It's called Playing Doctor. It's a sad and spooky tale. A lot of stuff coming your way this month, and I'll tell you why. The most momentous of turnip occasions is happening at the very end of the month. I am getting married. Yay! Oh, yeah! Everyone say, yay, turnip! Thank you, guys. I love you guys. You have made me feel so welcome in your eardrums. I ask you now for one thing. If you have ever considered supporting Turnip, if you have never considered supporting Turnip, weddings are very expensive. Consider it. I've got a lot of free content coming your way this week. Let's consider sending a little love back. But let's send that love in the form of American currency only. Everything helps. Even if you don't end up staying a Patreon forever, you know, everything helps. Let's go, guys. Let's let, let's get Turnip married. Yeah! It's October. October wedding in New Orleans. Ooh, very spooky. Let's celebrate the monster and the mash. Okay, that's it. Goodbye! <laughs>